0: Morning, church. Good to see you. Hey, listen, this morning uh, we had um, uh, two baptized uh, in our nine o'clock service, and that was exciting to see. And of course, if you were around last weekend, we had uh, four baptized in our morning services last weekend, but on Tuesday at youth, we baptized eight. And so it's just awesome to see what God is doing in people's lives. But I, I wanted to tell you this because, first of all, our YouTube channel has all of these baptisms there. So if you're encouraged by hearing, Uh, These stories of conversion and and uh, just see what God's doing in people's lives. Uh, You can go to our YouTube channel and watch all of those baptisms. But I I wanted to say this: that one of the uh, people that was baptized uh, at nine o'clock this morning was um, was saved between the nine o'clock and eleven o'clock services last week, and so it's just awesome. Uh, She'd actually, yeah, amen. (laughs) She told the story this morning. She'd actually driven away. And uh, they, were, they were on their way away, away from the church, came back and sought out uh, some counsel. And um, just in one of the back rooms here, Jordan led her to Christ. And so these are great stories. And I want to say, like, we've set the baptistry up here. We're going to leave it out there. Uh, anybody who wants to be baptized, we don't have, like, particular Sundays now that we're picking and just saying, hey, you got to fit, like, with the calendar. Uh, we're just saying, like, if you want to be baptized next Sunday, we'll baptize you next Sunday. So you just let us know. And, uh, and we'll baptize you, and, um, and uh, let's let the Lord continue to work in this way. All right, Revelation 15, <clears throat> and I want to start by actually reading the Scriptures today, and then we'll get into the introduction, but let's just start with the Scriptures. It's a shorter uh, chapter that we have in front of us uh, today, Revelation 15. This is the Apostle John uh, writing, and he says this, "'Then I saw another sign in heaven.'" great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea, the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the Tent of Witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave uh, to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels We're finished. Well, I don't know if you um, have ever heard of the doomsday clock. How many people have heard of the doomsday clock? Lots of you have. This was uh, started by a uh, group of atomic scientists after the Second World War in response to the development and use of nuclear weapons. And it was meant to warn humanity about the looming threat of nuclear Warfare, something that we as humanity had actually created. Well, this past week, if you were uh, watching the news, uh, and the Reuters reported it this way on Twitter, a scientist set the doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight, closer than ever before, saying threats of nuclear war, disease and climate volatility have been exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, putting humanity at greater risk of annihilation. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, this group could use a PR group to help them with their presentation, because that's—I mean, honestly—if you watch the video, it kind of looks a bit like a parody, um, and it's meant to be super serious, and and it is very seriously. What, what they're really saying as scientists is that planet Earth and her inhabitants are in peril, and we have to take responsibility. This has been our own doing. And I get how people in the world, like people outside of faith in Christ, would be very alarmed by the doomsday clock and by what these scientists are saying. But as Christians, as we hear this, this should not be a surprise to any of us. We who, who know Christ, we understand that there will be, as time passes, there will be a continuing downward spiral into a greater denial, greater resistance, and even greater hostility to God and his children. And this will put humanity in greater peril, not only of the natural consequences of our sin, which there are lots of natural consequences to our sin, but in fact will put us in peril of the divine consequences of our sin, namely the judgment of God. So Revelation 15, which we just read through, in this chapter, we have the, this is the final pause before we get into this outpouring, the final outpouring of God's wrath on the world. And notice in verse 1, it says that, that this is happening. This is the pause before the wrath of God is finished on those who have opposed him, those who have led others to oppose God in the last days. And those who are believers will see in this final moment, and it seems almost ridiculous to say this, but those of us who are believers who love Jesus will see in this final moment as the wrath of God is about to be outpoured on the world, we see an opportunity to sing, which again seems a bit ridiculous. An opportunity to sing and to worship God, to sing a song that proclaims two, primarily two awesome characteristics of God which have formed the title for this series, that he and his deeds are great and amazing. And each of those elicits a different response from those who love him, those who believe. So here we are in your notes and on the screen, every end time event, everything we've been seeing in Revelation, every end time event points to a God who is first of all great In his otherness. Great in his otherness. His otherness refers, the theological word is his transcendence. He's other than us. Amanda Jenkins describes it this way. God is outside of humanity's full experience, perception, and grasp. He's outside of that. How could we ever possibly know everything there is to know about God? How could we contain the infinite in 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 the finite? We reflect the image of God, but he does not reflect the image of humanity. He's other, he's different, he's transcendent. And that's what we see, at least in part, in this song. John in verse 2 says that he saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, a description of of the throne room of God that we saw back in chapter 4. But this time, the sea of glass is also mingled with fire. And so we have a picture of both the throne room of God and the lake of fire. And in that, an indication of what's coming. Namely, the joy of those who are vindicated, the joy of those who are saved, but also the despair and the destruction of those who have opposed God and denied him. In fact, John also saw those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name and are standing beside this sea of glass. And that phrasing, those who have conquered, if you remember in our study back to chapters two and three, and then in those two chapters, we had these seven letters that went to the seven churches in what is today Western Turkey, Asia Minor. And, and in those letters over and over again, what, what Jesus was saying to the church was, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, seven times in each of these seven letters, if you conquer, this reward will be yours. If you overcome, this will be yours. And so the language is repeated here. Those who had conquered are standing beside the sea of glass. Those who did all the things that Jesus said they were to have done in those seven letters now see the promises fulfilled as they stand beside the sea of glass. But there's so much more going on here that's helpful for us as we think about what got them there. In fact, um, Osborne, who is one of the commentators I'm using throughout this series, he observes that Satan's purpose has always been to force people in various ways to worship him and not God. And you'll recall in Revelation 13, we saw that there is in fact an unholy trinity that mirrors the holy trinity. And that this was the means by which Satan was seeking to force people to worship him instead of God. So what we're seeing here is, in fact, from this unholy trinity, we're seeing a threefold assault on humanity. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Osborne identifies them this way. What we're facing is, first of all, personal conflict. Personal conflict with the beast. Secondly, we're facing religious pressure with his image. And thirdly, we're facing economic persecution with the number of its name. These are all phrases that we find in, the ver- in verse two. And increasingly, this is exactly what we're experiencing. This is what Christians, those who love Jesus, are experiencing in the culture that we live in. We're seeing the reality of personal conflict as we battle it out with the beast, as we battle it out against the world system. That's what the beast represents. In a, in, a, in a culture that is increasingly rejecting any kind of biblical or godly ethic. And there's so many personal implications of that. For example, just one example, and not to go into any detail here, but the whole uh, world's ideology around sexuality and gender is putting so much pressure on Christians personally to declare one way or another, and then facing all the consequences of that. That's the beast. That's his system. That's what he's trying to press Christians into having to decide on. Secondly, we have this religious pressure in that we proclaim a gospel that declares, that dares to declare that Jesus Christ is the only way. Not popular in a world that preaches tolerance or a world that preaches that all paths lead to God or that God can be something of your own choosing. Yet we dare to say there is only one way, it's Jesus Christ, and you have to repent. So we face this religious pressure. And we know, of course, thirdly, that there's economic persecution, which is the reality in a world that demands compliance with its ideologies if you want to participate in society, and this is going to only increase in the days ahead. If you want to participate in society, or if you want to hold a public sector job. Now, that all sounds very discouraging. But as Christians, we see this differently. We ought to see this differently. We could be excused for being fearful of these things. But even in the face of this daunting reality of of Satan's attacks on us, his threefold attack on us, we are actually strengthened and encouraged. In fact, That's the very purpose for the book of Revelation. It was written to Christians who were in a very difficult situation, who were being persecuted and even martyred for their faith. And God gives them the book. He gives it to John so that they would receive this revelation and be strengthened and encouraged in the midst of the heartaches that they were facing. The purpose of Revelation is to increase faith by reminding Christians that despite persecution and even martyrdom, vindication is coming and justice will be served by God, and perfectly so. And so as, the, as the, the whole scene plays out, we see these saints. They're standing by the sea of glass. They're the ones who have conquered. And notice, they have the harps of God in their hands. So this is always that picture of heaven, right? You're just lounging on a cloud playing a harp. Right, But this is actually what the quote-unquote harp looked, looked like. It's an ancient Greek guitar called a kithara, and it's actually more of a guitar than it, is, um, than it is a harp. And if you've ever thought to yourself, I wish I could be on the worship team. I wish I had talent, because there's a lot of us that have no talent that way, right? But we see the team up here and so many guitars today. and, and we, Someday. You're going to be standing, if you overcome, if you conquer, you're going to be standing by the sea of glass with a kithar, kithara in your hand, a guitar uh, singing praises to God. Clearly, guitars are the instrument of heaven, not organs. Amen. Amen. So here's these believers who by faith have resisted the beast despite persecution and for some even martyrdom, and they're singing, they're praising God. They're singing, in fact, verse three tells us a, the, the song of Moses, the servant of God. If you want to jot down the reference of Exodus 15, because they're singing praise to God for taking them out of a captivity in Egypt. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and, or that is to say, the song of the Lamb. So it's one song. It's not two different songs here. It's one song. Originally, they sang it as a song of redemption. Praise to God for getting them out of Egypt was really just a foreshadowing of the redemption that would come through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, as he gave his life on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and said, it is finished, bowed his head. He died. He took our sins on himself. Redemption was accomplished. Salvation was able to be offered. That's the moment. That's what we praise God for. That's the song of redemption that these overcomers, these conquerors are singing. So here's the lyrics, verse three. That's the setup now to get to the song, which you can see in the scriptures is indented there for us to show us that it's lyric. Notice verse three, great and amazing. There's that phrase repeated again. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. And we equate the deeds with the person of God because those deeds flow perfectly from his nature, from his character. God always acts perfectly according to who he is. And in contrast to us as Christians, I'm not talking about non-Christians, but for us as Christians, a Christian's deeds, despite the best of intentions... A Christian's deeds do not flow perfectly from our nature. Our nature is redeemed by Christ. We have been justified before him. The challenge is we're still living down here in a very sinful world, so we're not yet fully sanctified. We spend the entirety of our life being sanctified, ongoing process of becoming like Christ. But in the meantime, our deeds still reflect a very conflicted nature. And so we don't act according to our new nature. We do, in many respects, continue to act according to our old nature. Jesus, in contrast, God, in contrast, operates perfectly according to his nature, and his nature is that of being holy. And when we think about this, the way he acts in his nature, the way we act in our nature, this is illustrating the very point that we're talking about here that he is other he's transcended he's different we can't even possibly understand there's not a single human being that could possibly understand what it is like to act perfectly holy and so he's other he's transcended he's different and we see that in him in this song and you see his otherness in the description of the scene as the hymn is being sung. So skip the rest of the song and look down to verse five. As this song is happening and the, and the conquerors are all around the sea of glass, verse five, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. We'll come back to that thought in a few moments. Verse six, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels, with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Again, an, another scene of worship like we've seen previously in Revelation. That really defies description. John's done his best. And the Holy Spirit has done what the Holy Spirit can do with the failings of human language to describe this incredible scene that's happening in front of John. Verse seven, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. This is his power, his righteousness, and his eternality on display as this culminating judgment is being prepared to be released. And we'll see that in chapter 16. Now notice, as all of this is happening, something very familiar happens. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, something very familiar happens. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. If you remember the story of the tabernacle and children of Israel and Exodus chapter 40 and Moses is there and and the glory of God descended on the tabernacle. And when it did, the smoke was so thick, Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle. In fact, the same thing happened when Solomon built the temple and they were dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. They're dedicating the temple and the priest could not stand and couldn't go into the temple for the glory of God had descended on the temple. Again, the same thing happening here when the the presence of God, when his glory is on full display, it shows us how he is other, how he is transcendent. Transcending, in fact, anything that we could possibly understand. I thought I would just let another commentator, George Eldon Ladd, just explain this out a little bit better. Ladd said this He is the Lord God the Almighty, in whose light the powers of the beast are limited. His ways, even in allowing the saints to suffer, are just and true. He is, in fact, the King of the ages. And in this time of great tribulation, when the beast seemed to have unlimited power to enforce his demonic purpose upon men and persecute the saints, in the darkest hour of human history, when it truly seemed that Satan was the god of this age, the martyrs sing a hymn of praise to God, recognizing that he is the true and living God. They exalt the name of God because, contrary to outward appearances, He is indeed the king of all the ages, including the time of martyrdom. And I hear that. And and whatever you're going through, and lots of you going through lots of things at home on the live stream as well, you're facing so much in your lives. Life is difficult. It's hard. You're stressed. You're beaten down. It doesn't quite compare to what we're reading here in Revelation at the end of the age when it's, it's a global catastrophic event. But nevertheless, the principle is exactly the same. Contrary to outward appearances, contrary to whatever's going on in your life, he is indeed the king of all the ages. He's other, and he knows everything that's going on in your life, and is in control of all of it by his sovereign power. And so, and so knowing, knowing what I know about him, My response is, I will fear him. The song asks rhetorically, verse four Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. There's that distinction with us. We're working toward our holiness. We've been declared to be righteous and holy, but we're still working at it in real time. And the rhetorical question here, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The question implies the affirmative. We should all, everyone, everyone will fear in light of the holiness of God. And listen, I get it. When we talk about the fear of God, some people get a little squirrely at that. They don't like to think about the fact that we are to fear God. What does that even mean to fear God? We have this great uh, little definition came out of um, one of the lexicons. Fear is to have a profound reverence and respect for deity. Notice those words, profound reverence, respect for deity with the implication of awe bordering on fear. Many others will just say it's, it's downright fear because of who God is, because of his otherness. It means to, to reverence him or to worship him. And so the right response of any true Christian, if you're a professing Christian, the right response for you right now, the right response to who God is, the right response to what's happening in the world and what's happening in our individual lives is a profound reverence, a respect for God. It's awe bordering on fear. So let me ask the question, in what way does your life reflect that? Does your life right now reflect the life of a Christian who has profound reverence for God? So much awe that it borders on fear. Fear. I mean, this isn't something to take lightly. This isn't like an add-on in my life. It's not, an, it's not an extra. It's not at all a slice of the pie. It's the pie. A casual approach to your faith. This is the danger. Because any of you think that you can have a casual approach to your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm just going to tell you that's not going to help you when Satan and the unholy trinity make their play to pull you away from God. They will have you, they will own you, they will destroy you if your faith is casual. Unless you are tenaciously holding on to him by faith, persevering through everything unless you are pushing back on the world, unless you're resisting the devil, unless you're denying your own flesh, then you will cave into temptation and you will be drawn away because their intent is to assault you at every turn and to have you worship Satan rather than God. And so in every decision, it's the pie, not a slice. In every decision, in every place I go, in every conversation I have, in all that I do, I fear him. I glorify his name. All right. Every end time event event points to a God who is great in his otherness. Here's the second part of it and also amazing in his nearness. Amazing in his nearness. We don't worship a God who's disinterested. We don't worship a God who's distant. We worship a God who's near. We worship a God who loves us and is close to us and is near to us, and he wants us to know that. And in fact, the song celebrates that. Verse 3 continues, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. The justice of God means that he is not only aware of the injustices experienced, but also that he has come to right the wrongs. That every wrong, every injustice suffered by every person in this room and everyone watching right now and everyone in the world, all of those injustices will be righted by God. Only a God who is near can do that. Only a God who understands the injustices can do that. Only a God who who made himself incarnate, who took on human flesh. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. Hebrews chapter 4, we read that he's acquainted with all of our griefs, uh, that that, that he he knew the struggles that we have. He he, he, He knew all of our temptations. He was tempted as we were except without sin. His incarnate, he became human and he lived among us so that he would not only know about the injustice, but you know the story. He suffered the injustices himself. Personally. Now look a, a, a back again at verse five. I said we would come back here and see like John did that the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven, it was opened. The tabernacle and the temple were all about God gave the tabernacle in the wilderness. He gave the temple so that people would know that, that, that God was with them. It was the symbol of his nearness, of his presence, earthly symbols of his presence. But from the cross, Jesus hanging there, suffering on our behalf, in the moment, in the very moment that he died, Mark 15, 37, 38, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple and the tabernacle were symbols of God's early, earthly presence, but only the high priest could go into the most holy place and only once per year. And now the curtain was torn apart as if God himself had done it, because he did. And even that most holy place would now be open to all, anyone who believed. God is nearer than he ever has been since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And so we should cherish this ability to approach God, to know him, to relate to him. But even now you'll say to me, I know it. I felt it myself. It's imperfect. I know that he's near. I know that he's with me but it seems so imperfect in those times when I fail him in those times when the pressure is on, when the stress is so high, when I don't feel like God is close. I get it. We all do. It's imperfect. And even as John sees it, it's an event that's yet future to us. This, this full access. Verse eight says this, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven, notice, until, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And so the sanctuary is opened. The glory of God is on display. The wrath of God is being poured out. But until that happens, until that's all completed, the full access is still not available to us. We will, after the pouring out of the wrath for the final time, enter the sanctuary and enter into the very presence of God. Until then, we have to remember that as other as he is, he's also near. And that we can and should experience that nearness now, even as we await the final move of God to bring us to himself. We're moving toward that ultimate expression, in fact, of his nearness. And uh, if you don't know the end of the book of Revelation, spoiler alert, I'm going to quote something from chapter 21. I'm sure you all know the end of Revelation. Revelation 21.3, this is it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. and God himself will be with them as their God. And I just like every time I read that verse and the rest of chapter 21, I just like, because <sighs> whatever else is happening in my life, that's where we're heading. And I'm gonna be there. Sooner than I even know. I'm going to be there in the presence of God. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to be there. And and nothing is going to be standing between you and God. Nothing is going to be hindering the presence of God. The Father sent the Son to earth to fulfill the covenant promises and so that he would be near to us. And the Son sent us the Holy Spirit because God knew how hard it was going to be to wait for that to actually happen. That in this interim period, when it's still not perfect, when we still can't see God, that we would need someone to help us. We would need the Holy Spirit. And again, many of you are in tough right now. For many of you right now, life is hard. And in this moment, you could think of nothing better than to see that verse fulfilled for you to be in the presence of God, to be with him. Yeah, we're all still stuck here. We're all still trying to grind it out on the timeline with all the temptations and all the difficulties that we face in life. Just like the disciples. You think back to when Jesus made the promise of sending the Holy Spirit to them. They were stressing over what was happening because he had repeatedly told them that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be leaving them. And they were stressing about it on the night in which he was uh, betrayed and arrested. They were in the upper room together and they were stressing about it. In the upper room, this is what he told them. John 14, 15 to 18, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you another helper to be with you for how long? Forever. It's right there. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus said. I mean, that should have brought them incredible comfort. But Jesus kept going. He kept talking to them. And he said this two chapters later, I'm going to him who sent me. So he delivers again the the, the hard news, the bad news. I'm leaving. I'm going. But because I have said things to you, sorrows filled your heart. This, This has crushed you. I get it. Because the nearness that they'd been experiencing for more than three years, following him around Judah and Galilee and listening to his teaching and seeing the healings and all the miracles that he had done and their lives radically transformed, they had left everything to follow Jesus. They were losing that. They were losing that nearness with him. Sorrows filled your heart, he said, but nevertheless... I tell you the truth. This is the part that's so hard for us. It's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that you're going through the hard thing that you're going through right now. That's the message. It's to your advantage that you're struggling and that life is hard. It's to your advantage that I go away. And in this case, for the disciples, for if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter another translation for this word. is the Greek word paraklete, the one who comes alongside and supports you and is near to you. He said, unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The father sent the son and the son sent the spirit so that God would always be near to each one of us. And knowing what the Father, Son, and Spirit have done and are doing for us in an ongoing way, that ought to embolden us no matter what we have to face in life. Adam Ramsey uh, wrote a wonderful book called Truth on Fire. The staff has studied this book. Our elders are currently studying it. And he's an Acts 29 pastor in Australia. He wrote this, to those who love him and long for him, who cry out with the psalmist, for me, it is good to be near God. His omnipresence soothes us with both comfort and courage. For if God is everywhere, God is always near. Amen? Now, what an awesome thought for us, because he is near, and that should comfort us as we think about that and as the Holy Spirit reminds us of that. So, In light of his nearness, we make this pledge. This is our response. I will worship him. And so the song concludes in verse four, the latter part of the verse, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And we saw a very similar scene in chapter seven, this worship scene, this great multitude, no one could number. They came from every nation and tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. It's an amazing scene. They had palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, the question is, does your worship reflect a heart and mind that understands what God has done in order to make himself near to you? Do you grasp the concept, the truth, of what God has done? And beyond understanding it, or at least in part grasping it, the second question comes hard on its heels. What are you willing to do now to be near him? He's near to you. What are you willing to do to be near him I mean, this this has to be about far more because we're talking about I will worship him, but it has to be about far more than just worshiping him one time per week when we gather together for, for our corporate worship time as a church. This is only a very small part of it. Now I'm into theology. I'm a Bible guy. Humanities, history, all of that. I don't do math, but I did some math in preparation for this message, because I was thinking about this whole idea of worship, and if you think that your worship is only here and now, that's a big problem. There are 168 hours in a a week, 168 hours, that is actually 10,800 minutes in a week. We gather for corporate worship for, let's say, 80 minutes a week. 80 minutes, eight zero out of 10,800 minutes in a week i did the math here's the percentage the percentage of 80 against 10,800 is 1.26% that's not enough and that's not ex- that that's not at all what's being asked of us here Our response to a God who has made himself near can't be God, I'm willing to give you 1.27% of the week. Because then the implication is, and I didn't do this calculation, but the other 98.74%, I got that number wrong at second service, and I could see all the math people in the crowd just going, What an idiot. I'm an idiot. I can't be that way. You see, our worship has to be reflected not only in these times of gathering together, not just when we're singing songs and hearing a sermon and gathering as a church. Worship has to be reflected in every aspect of our lives, every conversation we have, every relationship and how we interact with it. Worship has to be reflected in our marriages and how we're raising our kids and how we behave in the workplace and, 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 and how, we, uh, how we're seen in our neighborhoods by, by those who are living around us. Our worship has to be seen in, in, uh, on the clock and on, and on our calendars and with our coin and how we spend our money. Our worship is reflected on, 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 on uh, how we shop for our groceries and, and, and where we go on vacation and, 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 and how we drive on the roads. It's also a reflection of our worship. Who would like to repent now? <laughs> you see, our worship has to be reflected in the priorities of our life, how we spend every one of those 10,800 minutes in a week. Not 1.26 of them, 1.26%. We have to worship him fully, completely, with abandon, because of what he's done for us. He's great and amazing. Our worship ought to reflect that. We think of God as great and amazing. We think of him as other and also near. So I thought, like, what can we take away from this this week just so we could keep reflecting on this very moment, this very truth that we've heard? And I don't know if I've heard this from someone else. I can't give it credit because I don't know. But I wrote down this phrase, Jesus is my fearsome friend. Jesus is my fearsome friend. And it's important that we not miss either part of that description. He's not just fearsome. If he was just fearsome, he would be hard and he would be cruel. He would be a terrible God. But he's also not simply our friend. He's not simply soft and sentimental. He's both fearsome and friend. And for us to understand the fullness of who God is, we must see him is both. So take that phrase, write it down in a few places, and think about it again and again this week. Jesus is our fearsome friend. He's great and amazing. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we are so very grateful for uh, the clarity of your word, and what you have provided for us in the book of Revelation Father these are incredible visions of the future and also of what we're experiencing in our lives right now thank you Father for giving us this incredible picture thank you for your incredible love for us and I pray God that you would for those who are not yet believers God you would be convincing them of the truths that we've heard. Just as you convinced someone last week who was baptized this week, Father, you could be moving in a way to draw some who are hearing this message right now into a relationship with yourself to find the forgiveness of sins and to surrender to Jesus Christ. But Father, the message here is so clear for those of us who are believers who profess faith in you, Father. We have to up our game when it comes to our worship. We have to offer you profound reverence. We have to stand in awe of who you are and awe that borders on fear, for you are other. And our worship should be filled with gratitude because you are near as we ponder all that you did to make that possible. So, Father, help us to be among the conquerors as we battle it out with the world, the flesh, and the devil this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name.